we are going to spend some time in God's Word. We're in Mark chapter 16. I'm going to be reading a passage, a few verses from the 16th chapter of Mark in just a few minutes. I'd like to take some time to introduce, but could we just pray? Let's commit ourselves to really submit ourselves under God's Word. Have Him speak to us. Fill our hearts, refresh our hearts. Father, we do ask that. We humbly come and we have here in this congregation, as in many Christian churches, a high view of the scriptures. And so we set aside uh, a large amount of our time, our gathering, to open up, to read, expound, talk about, preach from, teach from the holy words of God. Uh, these are words of life to us, words that have your spirit really in and through them. And so we want to receive them with that kind of faith and expectation. Speak to us today. Have your way in our hearts and lives. Use your words to build us up and strengthen us uh, for our good, ultimately for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do a little sort of mental exercise with me. Imagine with me, if you will, that Jesus walks into the room right now. Somebody just came through the door. It was Paulus. It wasn't Jesus. <laughs> Imagine with me it was Jesus. I mean physically, in body, in person, walks into the room. He takes a seat. Now, I know and I understand that Christ is with us. His presence is real in several ways. We're gathered together in his name. His promise is that he would be with us when we gather. I know that the spirit of Christ is in many of you. And so when I'm with you, I encounter Christ. I know that when we share in communion and Jeff brought this out just a couple weeks ago when we shared around the table that the presence of Christ is very real, that his grace is very present and very active in the table of the Lord. I do not mean to diminish any of that. I'm not trying to contrast that. Um, those things are very true and very real. Nevertheless, I know to grasp that requires understanding and faith. And my burden is that sometimes we live our Christian lives less aware of just how alive Jesus is. So now picture in your mind, he physically just walked into the room and took a seat. And let's think about how that would play out. Let's think about what might happen with us in this room were Jesus to be sitting somewhere. Now, let's assume he just takes a seat and doesn't say anything. But, of course, you know, if he were to do that, I would not be up here. He'd have the microphone. We'd all sit and shut up. And you, we, would, we would not get out by 4.30, okay? Church is going to be a little longer today. We're going to spend some time together. But let's, for the sake of this exercise, say he's sitting here in the room. And his presence is physically here. Given the history of studying through the book of Mark, we can kind of anticipate a variety of responses to Jesus being present. 
maybe some, Jesus would be unnoticeable. Just a guy that showed up in the meeting, sat through the meeting, and you come and you go home and you think nothing of it. It's virtually unnoticeable to you. But for, for most of us in the room who have the Spirit of Christ in us, would notice something. Maybe at the beginning, a little bewildering, maybe a little questioning, like, oh, who is that guy? Oh, something feels different in the room. Do I, do I know him? Do we know him? And maybe after a little bit of time, it, it, it begins to formulate in your soul, and you, be, you come to, to realize, oh, it's him. It's really him. It's Jesus. He's like, he's here. He, he's sitting in in our service. Once you realize this, I can imagine the flood of pictures and thoughts that would go through your mind as you start to see a, a person in the flesh sitting in the room that you know to be Jesus. Now, if you've been here for the last 18 months, we have been studying our way through the gospel according to Mark. And so if you've been here for that time, you could start drawing up a whole repertoire of events that could come to mind as you're thinking about the guy sitting in that row right over there. Oh, he's the one that John baptized. And the voice came from heaven. This, let's talk about him. This is my beloved son. And him I'm well pleased. And it was on him that they could visibly see the spirit in the form of a dove descend upon him. When you think about that, you could maybe think about, be reminded of the 40 days he spent fighting temptation in the wilderness, near dead from hunger, and yet battling against Satan and temptations and overcoming you might rifle through scenes of him choosing disciples and teaching them and meeting in this small group, training them. Maybe you picture him teaching the, the crowds on the, on the hillside, feeding multitudes, casting out demons, healing sick people, lepers, paralytics, even raising the dead. You'd see him sitting here and maybe reminded of the profound parables that he taught, things that, that took concepts of the kingdom that we cannot see and made them very understandable, impossible to miss the application for. Maybe you remember him coming into Jerusalem to the festival where things really seemed to come to a head while he was walking on the earth. Opposition, betrayal, forsaking, condemning, suffering, mocking, torture, whips, lashes, thorns, sticks, nails terrible death on the cross and he's sitting right here that's him he's here in the room with us then a wave of self-awareness sweeps over you he's here you recognize him and all of a sudden you start thinking differently about yourself in his presence, you become strangely aware of yourself. All of a sudden, you see yourself differently, and you think about things maybe that you're ashamed of, regardless of whether they were small sins or great sins. 
Maybe you've committed a crime. Maybe you had a bad attitude in the car on the way to church today. It doesn't seem to matter. Both, both sort of come up in your soul. And now you're in his presence, and they look and feel. Those things come to your mind, and they, and they feel very, very different. And they, and they seem to weigh on you in an unusual way. Not because all sins are equally bad, but because they're all equally wrong. And now with Jesus present, the wrongness of it seems to take on a different light. It's an extremely uncomfortable moment. And in moments like this, the, the urge to escape is strong. This is the moment you're thinking, I'd like to get out of this meeting. Could I slip out the back door, go down the hall, get into the parking lot, and, and find my car? Because this is not a pleasant feeling. Now all of a sudden I'm kind of aware of things about myself that I would really prefer not to think about. And it's a struggle. It's uncomfortable. There's an urge to escape. There's an impulse to flee from his presence. You put the two and two together, who he is and, and who I am, and you think, logically, my condemnation is just around the corner. That's the logic. That's how it feels. I see how good he is. I recognize something wrong, how much is wrong with me, and you put two and two together, and you think, this is not going to be good. But then you remember something, something that we call the good news, something that we talk about Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, this wonderful gospel, and maybe it comes to mind at this moment that you remember from John 3, verse 17, that he was not sent into the world to condemn. Now you realize, oh, yes, that's who he is. Yes, that's who I am, but he's here. He came. He came here to be with us. And did he come to condemn us? No, actually, just the opposite. I didn't come for that. I came for something else. I came that you might be saved through him. I came to give myself a ransom for you, for all who would believe in him. He's here because his plan is to gather us to save us, to give us new life, to adopt us, to reshape us into members of his holy family. And so the moment of guilt and shame are then replaced by an overwhelming sense of awe, of astonishment, of gratitude, You know you're in the presence of Jesus when your heart is struck with a sense of awe and astonishment and, yes, even fear and gratitude. Mark set out with his gospel to tell us who Jesus is and to tell us what it means to follow him. He pressed in to challenge all of our thinking. Say, do you know the real Jesus? I want to make sure I introduce you, show you, convince you of who Jesus actually is because many people meet Jesus 
and are not struck with a sense of awe or astonishment. But you know you've met him if you have. Mark finishes his account. By the way, this is the last sermon currently in our series through the gospel according to Mark. We're in chapter 16. And Mark finishes account, his account with a very brief account of the resurrection. He leaves us with a seemingly odd ending of resurrection witness, witnesses left in a state of awe. Let's read the passage together. Mark chapter 16, first eight verses. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Quite the ending. Three things Mark wants to impart into our souls about the resurrection of Jesus. First, look. Just look. Just look at the evidence. Look at what has taken place. Just see it. Three women go to the tomb. These three women are really remarkable women. Other gospel writers tell us more. We certainly could talk about these ladies and more remarkable women in the Bible. Where would the Christian church be without women of faith, women of this kind of devotion? There's so much to admire, so much to commend, so much to emulate from their devotion to Christ and their faith. Their devotion to follow Jesus in other parts. It says they used to follow him, listen to him, and minister to him. In other words, they, they took care of business for him so his ministry could go on. They were there to serve, come alongside. In our account here, they go out and spend a significant amount of money to buy some expensive spices to go and anoint what they think is the dead body of Jesus. And they get up early and they make the trek down to the tomb. There are so many thousands of ways that women in the Bible and throughout Christianity continue to serve in God's kingdom behind the scenes with little or no recognition, rare, barely in the spotlight, rarely in the spotlight, and yet regularly doing these remarkable tasks that keep the world turning. 
so many living with a kind of selflessness, loving devotion that creates a kind of Christ-like aroma in so much and makes it so attractive. Thank you. Here, women of faith, this is not to say that you have to be behind the scenes all the time. I'm only saying they often are and doing vital work, extremely important, that makes it all function and all happen. But Mark does not seem to be interested in pointing any of this out. These ladies are mentioned, they're mentioned by name, but they are somewhat diminished in the narrative here. He reduces them for the time being to one thing, witnesses. They're just there to see. Ladies, for this moment, all I need from you, all I want you to accomplish is to be here and open your eyes. I just want you to look. I just need three witnesses to establish this fact that Christ is not dead, he's not here. So as much as we could talk about you and your lives and your faith and your devotion, right now, I just need one thing. I just need you to look. Open your eyes and say what you see. He lists them by name, which is a little unusual thing for Mark to do. He does it three times. He says these ladies were there at his death, at a distance, looking. Verse 40 of the previous chapter. At the burial finishes the burial section with saying, and these ladies saw where they laid him. And now at the resurrection. And the man, the angel, in the tomb says to them, ladies, look, see the place where they laid him. They are the first witnesses. Oddly enough, women at that time were not considered qualified to be witnesses. They were considered too unstable. There was a problem. You couldn't trust them. You wouldn't call them into court to be a witness. Quite an embarrassing blight on the culture at the time. But by having women as witnesses actually accomplishes a couple things. Every gospel writer tells us there was a group of women that saw the tomb first. And this idea is actually verifying and solidifying the truth of the event. It's actually kind of designed to sort of refute the idea that the guys, the boys writing the books, are making up a story here. Because you have to ask the question, if you were going to try and deceive everybody and say that Jesus really uh, if he wasn't raised from the dead, but you wanted to convince everybody that he was, and says, hey, we've got these witnesses, three ladies would be the last group of people you would call upon. Nobody would accept it. In fact, you could trace in church history people kind of jeering, oh, you're gossiping women, told us about this resurrected Christ. And yet each gospel writer makes it a point. It was these ladies, these supposedly unqualified Witnesses, why would they do that if they were lying? They did it because it's what actually took place. Sometimes you might think, well, the truth might not be so 
so believable, but we've got to tell you the truth. And the fact that you tell the truth, even if it is somewhat less believable, actually verifies your actual statement. It also helps us and communicates something about the status and identity in God's kingdom and how it is unlike the kingdom of this world. In a very real way, this is sort of elevating women far beyond the realities of the current culture that they were living in, but also speaks more broadly about God's kingdom, that it's the low and the despised, it's the weak that God exalts. Then the Apostle Paul write to the church and say, hey, listen, folks, before you were saved, not many of you were very well-to-do or of noble birth, very wise. You were not considered the elite in society, but God chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And so when God is looking for three witnesses for the resurrection, he sends three wonderfully devoted women. They come into the tomb and it says there's a young man there, which we understand to be an angel for a few reasons. Other writers talk about an angel being there. To say a young man, the Greek word there, it's not that unusual to use that term to describe an angel. And when you listen to the words that the young man slash angel spoke, you realize, oh, those are the things that angels say throughout Scripture. And no mere human could make such statements, would have such knowledge, could speak in those terms. And the response of the ladies, outside of maybe being a little bit spooked when they first walked in, like, oh, I didn't know somebody was here, but they were still terrified and afraid very common typical response to meeting an angel so the evidence points to the fact that what mark is calling a young man here is an angel and the angel says to them don't be alarmed you seek jesus he was crucified but he was raised he's not here look look right here this is the place they laid the body. Open your eyes, ladies. Look. So what you're needed for right now, just take a look. And do you see? He's not here. Just see. Second, receive grace. What does Mark want to give us from the resurrection? See it. Listen to the eyewitnesses. Secondly, receive the grace the women were first, but the disciples were the target. So the women were there, but the angel relays the message, now go and tell his disciples. Mark's entire account has not been an account of Jesus. It's been an account of Jesus and his disciples. They're very much a part of this gospel story. This is very much a part of the, of the narrative. Their training by Jesus has been central to the gospel. And the future gospel proclamation is about to be put in their hands. These are the key players in what God is doing. But you know, from last week, the week before, the week before, all these guys failed 
miserably. They left. They quit. They ran away. Jesus got in trouble. It got too hot. It got too difficult. It got too scary. And they left him. They forsook him. Can you put yourself in their shoes and imagine what you would be thinking and feeling? I blew it. I quit. I left. It's over. He's done with me. Disappointed, disillusioned, distraught. They had invested the past few years with this teacher. They thought for sure he was the one. They thought for sure they had a future with him. They thought for sure it was going to be a glorious future. But he's dead. But now he's not. Go tell them I'm alive. The resurrection means it's not over. I find this so amazing. When I look at what Jesus walked through, I find it so amazing how devoted he was to these guys. He was in the worst of situations, and yet he's constantly thinking about them, directing energy towards them. It's odd to me that you could be tortured, falsely accused, buried, put in a tomb, raised from the dead, and at each turn, he's got his disciples in view of how what's happening to him is for them, in a sense about them and to them. Can I just confess, I, I just, <laughs> it takes almost nothing for me to forget about everybody else. I mean, I don't have to have a big problem at all to be consumed with what's going on with me. And I can, in a moment, forget the whole world around me. And I see what Jesus is going through and I find it amazing. Go tell them. Because, disciples, the resurrection means for you forgiveness and restoration. It's what the, rest, what's, what the resurrection has accomplished. Oh, I know you forsook me. It had to be. It was meant to be. It was written. I understand why. But I needed to walk through this process. And, boys, I just want you to know I've come out the other side. I'm alive now. So call him up. Let him know. I'm on my way. I'll meet you in Galilee. And we're back on track. And tell Peter. Isn't that beautiful? That he would just drop Peter's name because Peter screwed up the worst. <laughs> he committed the worst sin. He denied knowing Jesus flat out. Came out of his mouth Three times over, I don't even know the man, to the point of calling down curses on himself to deny even being associated or even having any knowledge of who Jesus was. Could it get any worse? Could you do anything more stupid or more wrong? He did it. So Jesus comes out of the grave. Ladies, be sure and tell Peter. Make sure Peter knows I'm not dead. And I'm coming, and I'll meet him. I don't know how many of you have really come to terms with this. I, I think we all do in 
stages in our Christian life, this sort of reality that our, our failures end up playing a significant role in God's grace in our lives. We're so used to our culture, it's our resume, it's our accomplishments, it's our education, it's all, it's all kinds of, I, I won this, I did this, I, I was at the top of my class, on and on, you know, we're always finding a way, and yet somehow in the kingdom, Jesus takes the one guy that screwed up the worst and says, now, I'm going to turn you into the best leader. You are hereby qualified. You've screwed up massively. You've made a complete mess of your life. You've denied even knowing me. And now that I come out of the grave, okay, Peter, now, are you starting to get it? You're starting to understand it's not about you, not about your accomplishments. You, are you starting to see this about my accomplishing it for you? Are you beginning to understand it's like it's about my righteousness, my glory, my power, God the Father working through me to bring salvation. So Peter, by the way, your miserable failure is going to turn out to be your greatest asset because that's what's enabling you to truly understand grace, to truly understand who I am and what I've done for you and therefore what it means to follow me. Peter, because you're the biggest screw-up, you have the best opportunity to be great in the kingdom of God. Now, friends, please don't take this to mean you need to screw up really bad on purpose, okay? You can take a small mess-up. You can take any mess-up. Like I was saying earlier in the, in the introduction, it doesn't matter if the sin is great or small. When you're in the presence of Christ, you feel the weight of it all. And you realize the, the true reality of it. Bad attitude, a broken promise, whatever it might be. You don't have to deny the Lord. But here's the glorious truth, even if you did. The resurrection means grace. Receive the grace that comes in the resurrection. Jesus is alive. He comes out of the grave so that your worst failures, your greatest sins could be dealt with entirely and then used by God to make you deeper and stronger in his grace. This is remarkable good news. Mark writes this in such a way that only one thing seems to come into the focus. Jesus is alive. Everybody's kind of getting diminished and downplayed in this brief account. He wants one thing to come through. Everyone's sort of put in the shadows to make one thing clear. Jesus was raised because Jesus being raised means your forgiveness and your restoration. Friends, are, are, are you here today and are you stuck in your past? Are, are your past failures locking you 
down? Are you handcuffed, fettered by your past failures, by what you've done, didn't do? The message of the resurrection is that Jesus was raised from the dead for that, for your forgiveness, for your restoration. So you come to the resurrection with our failures, with our weaknesses, with our past sins, with our shortcomings, and we receive this grace of a resurrected Savior. Tell the boys I'm back. Call them up. Set up the meeting. I'm on my way. I'm ahead of them. Send them to Galilee. We're going to reconvene. We're back on track. We're back in business. Lastly, thirdly, what does Mark want us to get from the resurrection? Friends, stay amazed. Stay amazed. Now, let me make a comment. If you have a Bible in front of you, you probably noticed I stopped at verse 8. And there's a little bit more in your text. You've got a few more verses. You've got verses 9 through 20, probably printed in your Bible or on your device. I don't know if you know about this. You're wondering why didn't Pastor read uh, the rest of the chapter? Why he's acting like that's the end? And this is my point. That was the end. You get a little subscript, a little note in your Bible saying some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, Verses 9 through 20. The two earliest Greek, most reliable manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. There is a few reasons why most scholars would agree it's really not a part of the original text. The oldest manuscripts do not have them included. When you read what's written there, and as you know the original language, you begin to understand that they, the significant difference in the style of writing. The vocabulary is different. Over a dozen new words introduced in those last few verses, not in the previous writing, all indicates somebody else jumped in and wrote something to throw on the end of what Mark wrote. The transition from verse 8 to verse 9 is, is awkward. Grammatically, it's awkward. The subject changes from the women, and then it's Jesus. There's several things about this that make it fairly well understood. This doesn't belong with that. And the fact that those verses are not in the earliest Greek manuscripts should be a warning to us. On the other side of this, ending in verse 8 has its challenges as well. Kind of an odd ending. Not hard to imagine why somebody at some point felt compelled to write something that apparently Mark forgot to or left off. What an abrupt, awkward ending for Mark to leave us with. So it does, in a sense, feel unfinished. Now, there is a possibility that Mark didn't finish, got interrupted, got to a certain point, got called away, had trouble, 
change of life, circumstances, something. Or he did write more, and that got lost. These are questions we just we can't answer with any certainty. What we know is what we know, and what we've got is what we've got. Nevertheless, an awkward ending. My position is that verses 9 through 20 should not be included in the text for the reasons I've mentioned, but also, most importantly, the scriptures, the Bible, is really the, like such an important foundation for our Christian faith. And a, and a component of how we build a sense of trust and reliability on the scriptures is this historical, archaeological truth that we have so much overwhelming evidence that the Bible we have is equivalent to the original Greek manuscripts. Some 15,000 copies that coincide, that verify those original manuscripts are sound. Far more than any other piece of Greek literature that we would all assume is legitimate, the, the Bible greatly surpasses it with, with evidence. And the fact that this is such a, a pillar of our faith that we can really say with confidence what we read in the scriptures, we believe to be the truth of God's word because they came from the first eyewitnesses. That's, that's the premise of why we can put so much trust and confidence in this book. So if we know things have been added later, I think it makes good sense to exclude it. So I, I would exclude it on that basis. Not because something goofy is in there, not because it was poorly written, not because it says something about snake handling and we don't do that, so we don't want that in the Bible. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with the content of what was written. It's simply by the, the, the clear fact it was added later, clearly was added later. And so we cannot trust that those verses have been put in by an eyewitness and everything about our faith. All the details, what we know to be true, what we believe to be true in orthodox historical Christianity is based on the scripture and it's based on the scripture because we have overwhelming confidence that we have eyewitness, firsthand accounting of the life of Jesus and apostolic teaching. So there's my case. But here we are, ending with verse 8. What a strange, strange ending but here let me give you a couple advantages of Mark's ending his gospel with verse 8 here, here's the verse in case you forgot it here and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid the end story over well this sort of open end it, it, it does force us to face, I would hope, ourselves with it being left so open-ended. Now, 
I know you're probably a little bit like me. I, I love my stories, nicely buttoned up and concluded. Uh, the bad guy dies, the guy meets the girl, they get married and they live happily ever after. Close the book, I feel a big sigh of relief. All is right with the world. Isn't that beautiful? The book is done. And then I go on about my business. The story's over. Mark leaves us. Hey, wait a minute. You mean, what do you mean they didn't tell anybody? Of course they told somebody at some point. They were the ones that told the disciples. What is he talking about? And they're afraid? These noble women of faith? What, what's going on here? Why would you leave us here? Could it be that Mark was after something in us, in his readers? Did he have something else in mind to point out? What do you think about Jesus? Where's your heart? These ladies left the tomb afraid. How are you doing? Do you know who Jesus is? What's going on in your heart? Is there any astonishment there? He ends with this theme of astonishment, amazement, fear, trembling. Could I take you back through a little journey through the book using those words and seeing what Mark did with that? I'm going to rattle them off quickly. Chapter 1, verse 22, when Jesus began teaching in Capernaum, they were astonished at his teaching. Verse 27, when he rebuked the unclean spirit, they were amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? Chapter 2, verse 12, when the paralytic picked up his bed and went out, they were amazed and glorified God. Chapter 4, verse 41, when Jesus calmed the storm, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Chapter 5, verse 15, when the people saw the previously possessed man sitting fully clothed and in his right mind, and said they were afraid. Chapter 5, verse 33, the woman who was healed by touching Jesus' garment came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. Chapter 5, verse 42, when Jesus raised the 12-year-old girl from the dead, they were immediately overcome with amazement chapter 6 verse 51 when jesus met the disciples by walking on the water they were utterly astounded chapter 9 verse 6 when three of the disciples witnessed the transfiguration they were terrified chapter 10 verse 24 when jesus taught how challenging it was for the wealthy person to enter the kingdom of god the disciples were amazed at his words Verse 32, as they were on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus walking ahead of them, they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Chapter 11, verse 18, in the temple the chief priests sought to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Chapter 12, verse 17, when Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, they marveled at him. Chapter 15, verse 5, when Jesus gave no further answer to Pilate, Pilate was amazed. 16, verse 5, when the women approached the empty tomb and the young man there, they were alarmed. 
and verse 8. And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Can I ask you a self-analysis question? How do you know you've met the real Jesus? How do you know you have come in contact with him? Not, not your imagine, imagined version of him, not somebody else's version of him. How do you know you have come in contact with him? This is Mark's aim. Who is this Jesus? Do you know him? How do you know if you know him? If you've encountered the real Jesus, you will be astonished. You will be amazed. And yes, even fearful. It's okay to have a little trembling in the presence of God. It's a very normal, expected response to get in the presence of divinity, to have Jesus sitting in the room with us. Oh, not at all wrong or odd to have a little trembling going on inside of us. Please don't be foolish with some nonsense about, well, if he wants me to be afraid of him, then he must not be the God that I want to serve. I don't believe in a God that I should be afraid of. Please don't go down that path. When you get into his presence, people tremble. So go ahead and tremble. How, how can mere human beings get into the presence of the divine and not tremble inside? And let him be the one to say to you, now don't be afraid. He's the one that's supposed to say to us. He's the one that comes with the word to assure us. Presence of the holy, I'm terrified. Yes, good, but don't be afraid because I'm here. I didn't come here to condemn you. You felt it. You put the pieces together. Ah, he's holy. Oh, I'm not. This doesn't feel good. I'm trembling. I'm scared. I'm uncomfortable. Don't be afraid because you don't know why I'm here. Let me tell you why I'm here. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to make things right. I'm here for your forgiveness. I'm here for your restoration. So it's good that you tremble. But now, hear my words. Don't be afraid. Friends, Jesus does not have to physically sit in the room with us for him to be present. He's promised to be with us. We know in many very real ways he is with us. The ladies were called to look and you and I were called to believe the ones who looked. You and I were called to believe the ones that were called to be the eyewitnesses. We were called to rest assured. Ah, we've heard from three eyewitnesses. The fact has been established. Let every fact be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And we got them. So we can believe 
what they saw and rest in that. This is meant to change us, astonish us, amaze us, but then draw us in and compel us to follow. We have the worship team come on up. Solomon Grace Church, our best strategy for us as a congregation, the best and really the only path forward for us as a church is going to start with the basis that you and I have encountered the real Jesus. There should be something about us as a people, as individuals, and us corporately that lives with a constant sense of being astounded, amazed, still occasionally a little trembling, if you will, because he's alive. My burden is for us not to try to be Christians and not try to be a church that somehow is existing without existing in response to the fact that we have a living Savior who's no longer dead. He's very much alive. He is very real, as if he were sitting right here in the room with us. Would our lives be changed if he took a seat in this room? I trust they would. But our lives can and should be changed just the same because of what Mark wrote and told us actually took place. Let's live like we've got a Savior who's no longer dead, but alive and well. Let's stand and close with the song.